series. I'm your host, Marvin O'Kellett. Following the untimely death of George Floyd in 2020, I've taken on the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion officer for the Halifax Wanderers, recently adding accessibility as we continue to make sure we are being as inclusive as possible. As of 2021, we started the podcast as a means of continuing the conversation in a safe space. It's almost two years now since George Floyd's death, and I can confidently say that we as a club have embodied our mission, which is to bring our community together through sport. My aim is that by having these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, we can begin to break down barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. We would like to acknowledge that the land on which the Wanderers Grounds office and training facility is located is the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Today, I'm joined by the Honorable Senator Don Oliver. Don Oliver is a Canadian lawyer, developer, and a politician appointed by former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Oliver served in the Senate of Canada from 1990 until 2013. He was the first black male to sit in the Senate and the second black Canadian appointed to the chamber. Oliver practiced law in Halifax, Nova Scotia as a partner in the firm Stuart McKelvey Sterling Scales from 1965 to 1990, and subsequently at two other law firms for a total of 36 years, primarily in civil litigation. He taught at Dalhousie University Law School as a part-time professor for 14 years, and also taught law courses at Technical University of Nova Scotia and St. Mary's University. He's a member of the Queen's Council. For anybody who doesn't know, the Queen's Council is an office conferred by the Crown that is recognized by courts. Members have the privilege of sitting within the inner bar of court, and the term is recognized as an honorific. Welcome, Don. Oh, thank you for that most interesting introduction. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. I think it's important that people know some of the accomplishments you have you have had over the years, because when I learned a bit about you for the first time, um, admittedly, when we met on the Canadian uh, Congress call for uh, equity and diversity in the workplace, you know, that to me was a real eye opener. And, and I did quite a bit of homework on on your story and on your history. And um, so those are just some of the many highlights uh, that I think people need to know about some of the things you've done. And so thank you for, for you know, joining that call and, and for taking the time to, to sit down with me today and, and, and discuss some of the things that you've experienced, some, some insights. But I'd really like to start with people getting to know a bit more about you. Um, so I'd love to hear you know, your early childhood. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And we can take it from there. But I was born in the very small university town of Wolfville, Nova Scotia, in the Annapolis Valley. Uh, the only black family uh, of uh, about 2,000 people. And uh, we went to the schools and we were lucky that we had a small little farm. We had our own cow, chickens, pigs, gardens, fruit trees, apple trees. And we learned two things. We learned hard work and, and hard work brought about certain comforts. We always had enough food and we had a comfortable bed to sleep in. We had warmth at night and we could study. And uh, so those were some of the very early lessons. And uh, from day one, educa education was a key 
both my mother and father didn't get a university education and they insisted that, that we stay in school, study hard, get a, get a good education and that will increase our chances of having, having some kind of success in life. I, and I also was highly influenced by my grandparents and great-grandparents who uh, were slaves in plantations in the United States, in uh, Maryland and Virginia. They were visionaries. They too believed in education and they wanted to promote equality and they wanted to break down barriers, which they did. So that was instilled in me as a youth when I was growing up as well. And so that was my, my early background. And, and uh, so we all five kids went to high school and then we went on to university. And is it, is it safe to say that your grandparents had a huge influence in terms of you wanting to continue to break down the barriers that they went through, um, which led to your parents and eventually you? Oh, very much so on both my mother's and my father's side. In, in everything my grandparents did, they were breaking down barriers, opening up the path to make it easier for those behind them to get through. So I think it's safe to say that you find that that's a responsibility of each current generation is to, to break down the barriers for the next generation and make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes. Exactly, yep. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you start off with, you know, your, your humble beginnings and your, your pursuit of hard work and education, because as a, a lot of people know, um, know myself, you know, that's, that's something that my parents also instilled in, in myself when we were leaving Kenya as, as refugees. And, and it's, a, it's a common story for many successful, you know, minorities, not just, not just Black, but education and hard work seem to be always the two underlying factors that lead to people being able to live above their means. And why would you say that is the case? Why, why those two things specifically, education and hard work? But most people want to, to have a family, get married, have children. And in order to do that, you have to have enough money to, to buy a house and you have to have not enough money to help the children with their education and so on. And so you have to do the things that, that are going to give you the money to be, be able to afford that. Uh, a number of uh, people like you, myself, and others have said, we're lucky to be in Canada. Let's work hard here. There are all kinds of opportunities here. And so let's start by saving some money. And I know as a fact, a, a group that I had a lot to do with in real estate, that they uh, would come not, not having much English. And they would take a job uh, washing dishes and scrubbing floors and living in one room and saving every penny. After they had enough, they would then buy a, a duplex and, uh, or, and then a duplex, a fourplex, and then a twelveplex by still working hard, two or three jobs. And my mother and father always had two or three jobs to supplement the income that was coming into the house. So what are some of the, the humble jobs that, you know, your, your parents or grandparents would have worked before they got to a place where they could, you know, have those more prestigious titles that we all kind of aspire to? My father was a, a truck driver. and He was a laborer. He picked up garbage in the truck at the university and took it to the dump. And my mo mother had a job uh, teaching women how to sew. Uh, my mother had a, a job teaching students how to play the piano. My mother was a very brilliant pianist and my mother had a, a job 
making uh, clothing for students, graduation dresses for students. She stay up half the night doing that uh, to make extra money. So those are some of the jobs. Would you say that it's important for people to do those humble jobs before they get into some of these positions of power so they understand, you know, the bottom line? Because we've, we've seen a lot of you know, controversial comments by people, um, politicians specifically, you know, there's more recently one about the people who work minimum wage don't work real jobs, for instance, that was, you know, something that somebody had to take back, you know, and, and correct what they meant. But would you would you say it's fair to say that those humble jobs that give you that balanced outlook on life when you do get into the, the higher positions of power? That's an extremely good point that you make. And yes, of course, you have to start at the bottom. And it's just like in business. Unless you had to meet a payroll, you don't understand what businesses are like. But, but at the end of the week, you've got to be able to pay your employees. And if your business doesn't generate payroll, you've got to take it out of your own pocket. Now, that's how you learn. You say, that's, only good. that's not going to happen to me again. I'm going to make the business pay for these things. So you learn on those very, very basic steps before you go up to the bigger jobs. So yes, what a great, great point you make. Thank you. I think, I think it's just, it's very humbling to, to understand the bottom line. And, you know, I've worked at Tim Hortons, I've worked at the theaters and I've mowed lawns and, and all those, those jobs that sometimes <laughs> kids we moan about shoveling driveways and all that stuff when our parents are going and working hard. So I was like every other kid. I complained initially when my parents said, you know, this is how you should spend your evenings and weekends making some extra money instead of playing video games with your friends or whatever it might be. But I, I really thank my parents for instilling that work ethic in, you know, early on because it's it served me well in my in my present career. And and I know that if they didn't do those things, I, I might not be as hard worker as I am today. So I think it's an important one to to note. Continuing on from, you know, your, your, your childhood, you had these great values instilled by your parents. Um, how, how big of a role did the church play in your, in your upbringing as well? Oh, it was major. On Sunday, I was in church three times, and uh, I was in church in the, uh, for, for midweek prayer on Wednesday. And uh, my, the credo of our family was to work hard and love the Lord. And, and to give back to your community. And uh, that's what we all did. But uh, uh, the church was and still is a major part of our lives. And my father was an extremely religious man. And be, he, my father had married twice and his first son of his first marriage was uh, Reverend Dr. Oliver, a very well-known preacher and social activist in Nova Scotia who did an awful lot to uh, move the yardsticks forward for the black community in Nova Scotia. All 50 different little communities were helped by him. Wow, that's I, I didn't know that. And there was another piece of information I didn't realize when I was looking up your, your bio, because you have a relation to Portia White, who I did, we did a story on in our, in our first year on our website when we were honoring people for, for Black History Month. Portia White was one of those people. And this seems to be a relation there with you. Yeah, Portia was my aunt and she came to our home in Wolfville. I, my mother had a piano and Portia and my, my mother performed uh, for some people in our house. Like we had up the president of the university, the president of the divinity school, and they, they came up here and meet Portia. And we children had to stay upstairs. And I remember vividly 
I went one time she was singing, her voice was so big and so powerful that I thought that I could feel the house shake. It didn't shake, of course, but it, it was just that big and that powerful and that wonderful. She was an incredible performer. And now there's a lady who broke down a lot of barriers. Can you imagine going to New York in the 1950s and doing your debut at the town hall there? There was so much racism and bitter prejudice and hatred and so on, but she persevered and became a world famous contralto, singing in the great concert halls of the world, South America, Europe, and I'll tell you a story. She came back and she performed for a small little church group in, in New Glasgow uh, uh, years later. And you know, there might have been 100 people there. And after it, she was exhausted. She did just come back from another trip. And so she put on the concert in the church and then went to the biggest hotel in the area called the Norfolk Hotel, went in and said, I'd like a room for the night. And they looked at her and they said, we don't, don't have black people in our hotel. And so fortunately, the, the Baptist woman who drove her there said, come to our home. We have an extra bedroom. You can sleep with us. So they gave her a bedroom and she had a good night's sleep and moved on. When I was growing up, there were restaurants in Halifax that would not serve me or my family. And uh, there were bar barber shops that would not cut my hair. Uh, there were pool halls that would, would not let us into play. There were bars uh, that would, would not serve you. So that's what it was like when I was growing up in the 40s and the 50s in Nova Scotia. It was a very, very racist uh, society. For people who aren't as in tune with history, and, and I've only admittedly gotten more interested in history in the last four or five years myself, when did things get better in Halifax in terms of being able to go eat at any place generally, be able to go play pool wherever you wanted with friends, whether you had black friends or white friends. When did those, did you see those things start to change? Be in the seventies and the eighties. And was it gradual or was it a pretty? Oh no, very gradual. Some things were changed by statute mm -hmm. and uh, some things were changed by the human rights act. Some change for things were changed by cases that went to court. So they varied. It wasn't just one day, suddenly acceptance was there. That was not the case. It took place over many months, many weeks, and many years. And uh, there's still areas where things are not equal, where acceptance is not a fact, where tolerance is not a fact, where inclusion is not a fact. Where Because today, in terms of pr promotions and jobs, Blacks aren't treated fairly and equally. In terms of advancement, not treated fairly. Equal pay for equal work, no. And uh, so we still have a long way to go today in 2022. Definitely. You know, we, we talk about positions of power. You know, it would be great to see more uh, minorities and black people in those positions of power, for sure. So taking a step back here in your journey, you know, you, you went to you went to university. Was it at Acadia first? I believe you went to. Yep. And what did you study at Acadia? I took uh, history. I did my honors in history. Uh, minors in English and philosophy. And then I spent the next year studying for my master's in philosophy and existentialism. And then I won a scholarship to go to uh, law school. So I didn't finish my master, but I went to law school in Halifax at Dalhousie University. And then from Dalhousie, where did you go from there? Uh, from Dalhousie, I practiced at uh, Stuart McKelvey Sterling and Scales and uh, for, for 25 years. A couple of other law firms, and then I, in 1990, I was summoned to the Senate 
So I left my job in Halifax, went to Ottawa to be a senator. I was there for 23 years as a senator, and uh, then I retired in 2013. And what would you, your layman's explanation of what you do as a senator or in the Senate? What is like your layman's? Because we do have some, some viewers, obviously, as young as, you know, 14, 15, 16, who maybe don't understand. The Parliament of Canada is made up of two main houses, the House of Commons and the Senate. And the Senate is the upper chamber. And the Senate has to review all bills passed by the House of Commons, study them, amend them, change them, reject them. And so the Senate is a very, very powerful house that oversees new public policies and the ones that become the law of Canada. And so we work in committees. We'll sit in, sit in a committee with eight to 10 people and we will call witnesses. We will ask questions of the witnesses. We will ask them to review you the legislation that's come from the House of Commons. And that's the major work that we do, committee work, work on legislation. In addition to that, there's all kinds of outside work that has to be done. I rose to the position of being the deputy speaker of the Senate of Canada. And so when the speaker was not there, I acted as speaker. And in the order of precedence, we have in Canada that the top person would be the governor general. After that, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. And after that, the prime minister and after that, the Speaker of the Senate. So the Speaker of the Senate had a lot of diplomatic and other uh, work to do. And so I often would ent entertain royalty uh, coming to down like King and Queen of, of Spain, for example. And uh, I did other major diplomatic work around the world as a, a, a deputy speaker uh, representing Canada. And I'm sure you got to experience many things traveling, but what was the makeup initially of the Senate when you first joined uh, in terms of, uh, you know, males, females, um, you know, people of color? What, what was the initial makeup of the, the Senate when you first joined? Well, it was mostly male, mostly white. There were only two black people in the entire Senate, over 100 people when I joined. And so uh, the, the makeup was skewed in favor of whites and white males. And did that change over time, or is it generally still the case? Oh, no, it's, a, it's about 50-50 male-female today. There is a, a lot of represent, re representation of people of color. Mm -hmm. It is a lot better than it was. And in terms of that progress, like, you know, you said about the 1970s, uh, 80s is when you saw um, the situation change for Black people in Halifax. Was that echoed across the Senate as well for that timeline, or was it slower? Things were slow in the Senate. And I spoke out weekly almost about uh, injustices, about racism in the Senate and in the parliamentary precinct, also with the Library of Parliament, also in the House of Commons the barriers, the racism, uh, and uh, the, the lack of statistics on hiring mm. and the lack of hiring. There was one year, there was a five-year period where the Senate of Canada did not hire one person of color. Five-year period, not even as a janitor or as a guard or as a, someone to, to wash out the, the, the toilets and the washrooms. They weren't hired for anything. Wow. Not a visitor, it was all white. 
Wow. So how, how, how do you go about, you know, impacting that change? You said you were speaking out almost weekly. How do you continue to find that energy when, you know, your, your cries are falling on deaf ears? Well, they weren't necessarily on deaf ears. The the head, the head of the Senate has a a title. You would call them the CEO or the president or something in the Senate. You're called the clerk. The clerk Mm -hmm. is the highest person. And uh, so the clerk of the house of commons and the clerk, of the Senate, I met with them along with the, the chairman and the president of, of the Library of Parliament, asked them in the room why there, there were so few people of color in their particular areas. And I asked them for statistics for hiring. They didn't have any. And I said, well, you should have some. So uh, coming back next year and we'll meet again, we'll see what happens. So, so I kept that kind of pressure on. In addition to speaking out in, in the Senate, and it went into Hansard, and Hansard is read around the world. Mm. People around the world can read what's happening. So it had its influences. What would you consider the first win, you know, that you saw for, for Black people or for people of color in, um, in the Senate specifically? When the Senate agreed that it would keep a report on their hires and give a report to the Senate itself, outlining the statistics for hiring in various job categories in the Senate. That was a win. Because then there's something to hold accountability to when you have actual numbers to say, this is the percentage or this is the number we have and maybe this is where we should be going. That's right. And when we, when each time I got those numbers, I would make a speech in the Senate, uh, comparing them, making comments on them and putting their feet to the fire. So it was, it was really something you personally took as initiative to keep reminding them ongoing, not, not for ever forgetting to, to speak about those statistics when you received them. So that was your way of making sure that it stayed at the forefront. That's correct. Going from there, um, you know, on the Canadian Congress call we had, you shared a story that's a bit more local here in Halifax about a woman who wasn't able to bury her, her child in, in, in downtown. Can you, can you tell me how this woman came to you and 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 what she had told you at the time there was a a black baby who had died and the parents wanted to bury the baby in a cemetery where they lived and uh, the cemetery said no black people cannot be buried here and so we the NSAACP I was the vice president at the time said this is wrong And so we did some research and found that in 1907, the municipality where the cemetery was passed a one of bylaw saying that black people cannot be buried in this cemetery, period. They passed it and it stayed on the books and it stayed on the books until 1960 when we raised it as an issue. That baby subsequently uh, was able to be buried there. And uh, but they were a little, little bit slow in literally taking that bad bylaw off their books. When a, a, a one-off bylaw like that is going to be passed, like what's what's the process? So let's say I'm I'm the guy who wants to create this this bylaw. Is it a voted on? Is do I have to create? Do I have to have reason? Just reason for this is why I want this bylaw to be in place. Well, it was done by the government of the municipality of the area, St. Croix. It was done by then, and they would be elected officials, and they would be sitting in their council, and someone would bring forward 
this piece of legislation and they would have to debate it and vote on it. But don't forget, this was segregation uh, was very common. We had a segregated schools, segregated churches. We had segregated many things in Nova Scotia at that time. Mm-hmm. So this was quite common and not unusual. And I'm sure, but I have not done the research, that there were other cemeteries in Nova Scotia that had similar bylaws. Blacks were not allowed to be uh, buried uh, in uh, in most cemeteries. And if they were, they were told that they had to be buried on the outskirts, but not in the inner part of the cemetery. Yes. And when, when I was going through my research, there was, there was a minimal of three um, across Nova Scotia that had similar laws. And yeah. You know, the, the reason I asked that that last question is because, you know, it all reverts back to why uh, black people are looking for representation, because if there was representation, the elected officials were voting on such a thing. There's no way such a thing would have been passed because there would have been black people that, you know, on there saying, you know, I have children who I would like to be buried downtown. I live downtown. And but if there isn't that representation and it's a room full of white males, as you initially stated for the Senate initially, then it's easier for something like that to just be passed and say, yeah, sure. doesn't bother me. doesn't affect me. doesn't affect my family. Let's pass it. Because there's a lot of people, you know, when I speak to and they ask, you know, why why is representation such a big deal? I've, I've been asked that question a lot in the last two years since I started this role. And people don't understand that it's through representation that we avoid making these bylaws, these one-off laws that affect specific minority groups. Or through representation, we will avoid repeating mistakes of past generation. Because when people like yourself, like myself, are trying to pursue to be in these positions, you have to learn, like to your point earlier, it's not just hard work, it's a combination of hard work and education. So we learn about these things that have happened in the past and that are going on in our own neighborhoods, communities, locally, nationally, so that we are more prepared to address them and make sure that they don't continue happening because they do directly impact our family, whether that's you know brothers, sisters, mothers, daughters, sons, cousins, aunts, uncles, it's more re- it's more relative to somebody who can say, oh, I know somebody who this impacts and somebody in a room who's voting on something. And they're like, I don't know anybody who this impacts. So it's just just a little side note there on, on representation, because I do find a lot of people, um, specifically white people admit, who don't understand why representation is, is, is crucial to changing the narrative. So going on that, you know, what are what are some things that you've seen that have changed that you're proud to say that you were a part of that change? I think that the biggest change that I made in my 50 years of working in equality and diversity issues, I had the Conference Board of Canada, a major think tank, do a study for me on barriers to the advancement of visible minorities, including Black people, in both the public and the private sectors. Were there any barriers? And if so, what they were? And was one of those barriers racism? I spent a lot of time, months, working with the conference board to see if they would do the study because I wanted it to be the biggest, most comprehensive study ever done in Canada. And I needed the research to be able to prove to people what what they found. So they said, okay, we'll do the study for you. It's going to cost you $500,000. So I went out and I raised the $500,000, gave it to them, but said, look, I'm giving you this money, but I want to have a committee that oversees your work 
-hmm. and they've got to report to us every two weeks on where they're going, where the research is going, so we can see how the money's being spent. And so we did that, the report was done, and that report uh, is, is a report that came down and said, the business case for diversity is, is the key to future uh, development in Canada. And uh, that's one of the key things that I worked on in my 50 years. And basically, what does the business case for diversity really mean? It means simply acceptance of difference. Mm -hmm. If you're one color and I'm another color, neither color is better than the other. Let's just accept them and get on. And let's be tolerant. Make everything that we do an example of equality. So build that into your organization, into your school, into your church, into your company, into your business. And so what does it mean? If you are a diverse business, you have a better chance to be innovative, have creative ideas. Uh, you can create decisions for making new policies, have less employee turnover because so often the revolving door takes place and good black people are re revolved right out because they're not accepted, they're not tolerated, they, their differences are not accepted. Mm. Uh, you can have more positive corporate culture. You can understand new potential markets better. If you want to do business in India and you've got some Indian, senior Indians on your employee, they can tell you good ways to enter that market because they know the people. Then they, you can outperform your competitors. And most of all, more profits go to the, the, the bottom line. You can make more revenue. And uh, it, this has been proven over and over and over again, that if you are a diverse corporation, you're more profitable. And so profits come with diversity. And so someone said to me, look, in, in, we're just coming out of a, a major, major pandemic and inflation's running at 5.7%. What can we do to make a profit in our company? And I said, get diverse, bring in diverse principles, bring in the business case for diversity, accept difference. And uh, start getting some of those profits down to the bottom line so you can pay more to your shareholders. Mm -hmm. And so that conference board report goes beyond showing that it's just uh, not a business necessity that you're diverse, but it's a matter of survival. And so that's the future in Canada, the business case for diversity. And, and my report uh, and my work had a major impact on getting that circulated throughout Canada and around the world, because I spoke on this very thing in all through Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, so on, and uh, in, even down in South America. It really resonates, you know, in a time, you know, even even the league that the Halifax Wanderers are part of, you know, one of the one of the mottos of that league is we are many, you know, we are one. So it's through that, you know, celebration of differences, like you said, the acceptance of differences, which, you know, is, is a good starting point. You know, what you're saying is having the statistics and the data is 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 a good next step. What advice would you give to even someone like myself who, you know, has a committee here locally? What are things we can do to continue on the work that you started? Well, just keep promoting the business case for diversity and explain to them how innovation and creative ideas can put them ahead of their competitors. In my case, my I told you before, I had a half-brother, Reverend Dr. Oliver, and when he was a student, he excelled in all sports, everything from water polo to, uh, to hockey, 
He is the captain of the hockey team, football, uh, and uh, track and field and running. Uh, and so sports was a major part of his life, a major part of his university life, and a major part of what he took to do his social outreach in the black communities throughout Nova Scotia. You can't underline enough the importance of sports to the development of our people. I, I completely agree. You know, that's, that's why it's so great that we have a platform like this now, you know, this Together for Change series to acknowledge that sports aren't just for, for fun and, and for, you know, cheering and, and, and goals and, and drinks. It's, it's, we have a, a social responsibility um, to our community to educate, you know, the next generation. And not just that, to your point, the business case for diversity, that's, that's also creating a better corporate culture, um, avoiding, avoiding turnover, you know, having representation right from the bottom line, from the people who are, you know, scanning people when they're going into our games, from people who are on the committee, having, you know, CEOs and presidents who are also, you know, people of color. That, that is why we have this platform so that we can continue to have these conversations with people like yourself who have done uh, laid a foundation so that we can continue the work through like the diversity committee that we have and and through some of these conversations that we continually have. So I really thank you for for sharing that that piece on the business case for for diversity because in the sports world, it's all too common what you touched on turnover. you know turnover is a thing that happens a lot in the sports world and it's something that I'd like to see. Um, especially within the wanders, you know, we, we, we avoid through accepting of, of the differences and, and different ideas. And the other point that you made outside of turnover, you know, is the corporate culture. And then understand your future clients better so that you can market to them better, making new public policies for your, for your company, your firm, your school, your establishment. Avoiding the turnover, you know, the, the turnovers are very expensive, revolving doors and outperforming competitors and, and having so much more profit going to the bottom line. Diversity works and it pays dividends, big dividends, cash dividends. No, and that's, that, that is the one that I was forgetting. So, you know, outperforming your competitors, you know, it's, it's, it's no secret to anybody who follows the Canadian Premier League that you know, Halifax is doing something special. You know, we get that a lot in the, in the community because we're so diverse. You know, you go, you go to the Wanderers grounds, you'll see the pride flag, you'll see the Mimah flags, you'll see the Trinidad flag, you'll see all these different flags of different communities that are represented both on the field and off the field. And we have one of the best attendants in the league and we have one of the best fan bases in the league because we've really shown that we're welcoming to all, all the different backgrounds. Have you, have you ever made it to a game yet, Don? I regretfully haven't, but because of my health, but um, all, all of my relatives are there in front row seats every day. They just love the sport. So that they're, they're there. That's awesome. You know, going through some tough times, we've, we've been able to kind of forget it all by being together at the Wanderers grounds and just feeling that that community love and and just seeing all the different people that are here in Halifax and celebrating just through sport so I think it's something that you'd really you'd really enjoy in your career you've met some pretty influential people you know you you met Obama can you tell me when and how you came about to meet Obama first let me say I've met 
a lot of influential people, oh, President Obama, President Clinton, President John Kennedy, the president of South Africa and Becky and, and many others. And uh, uh, I've enjoyed my conversations. In, in the case of Obama, your specific question, Prime Minister Harper said to me that he was going down for a G20 briefing with Obama and he wanted me to come because he told Obama about some of the social work that I'd done in the black community. And it really compared to some of the work that Obama had done in black communities. And he felt that we should meet and talk. So we went to the Oval Office. And after they finished their meetings, I heard a voice say, Senator, can you come over? I went over and Obama and I began to talk. And we were looking out and I pointed out the window and I said, you know, sir, down the road, not far from here in Virginia, uh, my grandfather and great grandfather were slaves on a plantation. My grandfather came to Canada, got an education and uh, I got an education and I became the first black man in Canadian history to ever be summoned to the Senate of Canada. And uh, he said, look, I'm the first black man to be president of the United States. So let's have a picture taken together of the two of us. We had a picture taken in the Oval Office of the two firsts, and that that was pretty special. But um, that that's um, a nice part of my job. But another part of my job is talking about blacks in Nova Scotia who have had such a difficult time of it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book called A Matter of Equality, uh, and in that book, I talk about a group of people who lived in a place called Africville. Now, Africville is located in the north end of the city of Halifax. And in the 1800s, the early 1800s, it was a thriving black community with more than 700 families in this community. The people were working, they had jobs, they had families, they had a church, they worshiped, supported one another. Uh, The extended family was an important part of their growing up, as was the church. And uh, they, the, the land where they were located was on some very beautiful land that uh, had value because it was right on the water. As time went on, the city of Halifax said, these are black people. We can treat them the same way that other people treat black people, and that is with great disdain. So the city of Halifax, even though these citizens paid taxes, they did not get any garbage pickup. They didn't get any police protection. Uh, They didn't have roads that were plowed of snow in the winter. They didn't have graders come over to grade up the roads in the spring. Uh, They had nothing. The city dump was put in the heart of their community and other things happened in that community. And soon uh, with that kind of disregard by the city, the community fell apart. The, the citizens continued to pay their taxes, but the city fell apart. The people found that the city wanted their land and they were being kicked off their land. And so I wanted to read a passage to you that I wrote in the book about Africville. Now, here is this once thriving black community in Nova Scotia made up of former slaves, freed slaves and other blacks who came to the province by ship. And just let me read. As I started my three years of law school, I was painfully aware of Africville, the well-established Black community on the shore of the Bedford Basin, which dated back at least as far back as 1848, 
was only a few miles from the law school. Halifax had decided that it was going to demolish it home by home. Halifax City Council voted to remove all the residents of the well-functioning community in the year 1964, the year I graduated. City Hall wanted the valuable land. The destruction of this black community screamed off the front pages of the newspapers. It had the momentum of a huge ocean liner that was too big to stop. It couldn't be stopped. It rolled completely over Africville until there was nothing left, not a church, not a house, not a garden or a clothesline, no deeds, no birth records, school reports or marriage or death certificates. Everything was gone, a whole community erased. The last house was demolished on January 2, 1970. Africa had been the billboard displaying so many of man's inhumanities to man. The city had shown deep disregard for the common decency and compassion that should be accorded all human beings just by virtue of their humanity. That respect had been lacking for decades in regard to Africville. Throughout my youth, the, the, the Woolfield Olivers would sometimes take a Sunday drive to visit the Halifax Olivers at the Cornwallis Street Baptist Church. Uh, my stepbrother would reside. After church, we would stay for the big two-family dinner at the Parsonage. During those visits, Reverend Oliver told us that Halifax wouldn't even send a road grader to fix Africville's huge potholes in the spring, nor would it send a snowplow in the winter. 400 or so black people uh, who lived in Africville, worked and paid taxes, got no paved roads, the trash collection, though it did get the city dumped. There was no city water or sewage system in Africville. Police and fire departments rarely protected Africville. My brother was clearly agitated, frustrated, and seeking answers even from us. But what could he do? He was pleading and praying for some kind of divine guidance to help stop the pillage of Africville, but he couldn't stop the destruction. The Chronicle Herald, my old newspaper where I used to write, reported that many residents had been promised $500 for their homes and land. It wrenched my soul when I learned that some black residents of Africville had received their payments in brown paper bags filled with nickels, dimes, and quarters, and perhaps the occasional 50 cent piece. What a gross indignity. What a hateful, nasty, yes, appalling way for one human being to treat another, a bag of coins. It brought tears to my eyes. This tore my heart out. Such low-class behavior was worse even than the systemic anti-Black racism it reflected. I wrote a strong letter of protest to the mayor. One academic researcher who was given access to all city documentation said that I, I was the only Black Nova Scotian to file a protest with the city about the destruction of Africville. Some things are hard to forget because they are so painful. It stirs up so many feelings just hearing all the things that happened to the people at Africville. And I, I went to Africville actually to record a podcast um, last year with uh, Juanita Parsons, um, Bernice and, and Bernadette, who actually grew up there. I don't know if you're familiar with Bernice or Bernadette, and I'm sorry, I don't have their last names um, memorized, but they were, they told, they shared some stories of, of, you know, things they experienced when they were growing up there, you know, seeing the dump trucks arrive to take away everything that they, they owned. And it's just, 
an example of how inhumane um, people can be, you know, just because of the color of their skin. They were treated differently because they could get away with it. And, and I really strongly recommend people read this book because it goes into depth because a lot of what we learn about in, in the high schools here and the junior highs here is just tip of the iceberg. They don't, they don't unpack the layers of hurt, the layers of injustice, the layers of inhumanity to what has happened to the people of Africville, the people of Cornwallis, people of all sorts of different communities here and in, in, in the HRM and beyond. You know, there's there's places even out when you go to Weymouth and Yarmouth and, you know, other communities that have been treated similarly. And that is similarly in the fact that it was unfairly and unjustly. It's it's something that has to stop, you know, and, and how how does that stop? It's through education through hard work of both the minorities and the majority, because it's it's never going to be solved if it's only the minority work working to solve the problem. And I, I think you would agree with that, Don. Yeah, I do. And it has to be more collaborative if it's going to actually be ended or this problem be a small one, hopefully in the next few generations, because I've even had conversations with people who were part of the majority, you know, white males who were in positions of power. And sometimes, actually more often than not, they're very sympathetic and empathetic to what has happened in the past, but not owning what is happening currently, presently, and their responsibility in changing the narrative through their positions of power and through their privilege. And, and to that end, what, what do you say? you know, more people who have white privilege have to do to support in the anti-racism that we're all advocating for. White privilege is at the very heart of anti-Black systemic racism. And we have to look at it. What is white privilege? It's an inherent advantage possessed by people who are white just by virtue of their color. They have negative stereotypes of Blacks going way back to slavery days, the, the way we were treated and were in, in slavery days. And they have these unconscious biases about Blacks. So we have got to go in and meet with them and teach them to, to understand not how different we are, but how many things we have in common and how much alike we are. Because they, this white privilege affects the entire functioning of the national subconscious of Canada this unconscious bias against Black people and so on. And so I personally want to build a more inclusive Canadian society, and I want it to be more accepting of them, and I want all people to be treated equal, equally so that our lives become a matter of equality, uh, the name of the book. I want equal worth, e equal dignity for each human being, and that can only happen once we sit down with whites, work with them, over their white privilege and let them know how much we have in common and how much we are alike. I think there's this parallel that people are more accepting of, um, which is gender equality. You know, we've seen a lot happen in gender equality in the last 10, 20 years. And I really encourage people to remove the word gender in front of that word and just see it as equality. 
How can yeah. we just make things more equal? Because if you can see the gender equality when there's the word gender thrown in front of it and understand that men and women are no different, um, and especially not by any choice of their own, why not remove the word gender and just choose equality for people of color, Asian descent, whatever, and just realize that we're all just looking for equality, true equality, which isn't just gender, isn't just race, isn't just ageism, isn't just, it's just equality. When you break it down to its simplest form, that's what we're all fighting for. And it's disheartening when you hear things like, you know, Black Lives Matter, which is, you know, one of the greatest, biggest social movements in, in history. And then people are choosing to um, debate simple things like, well, it, it's not Black Lives Matter, it's all lives matter. Those are the, the white privilege that people don't understand they have in even arguing a simple statement or line like Black Lives Matter. It's like, we're not, we're not talking about that there matter more, just that Black Lives Matter. And people even wanna debate that and get into, it's the first stage where even, we're not even getting into, you know, these other layers of equality. It's just, can we just all agree that Black Lives Matter? It just, it blows my mind that there's people who find that as a threatening statement and feel that they need to dispute it. It's, it's, it's truly mind blowing. So, so to, you know, everybody listening to, to, to really, you know, wrap, wrap up with the heart of this conversation and what I hope you take home and really make sure you, you know, you, you get the book. It's on Amazon. It's an Indigo. I know even locally here, you can find it at, at chapters. If you go, they'll, they'll order it for you because it's a part of an Indigo, but a matter of, equality is just speaking about all of these different things you're seeing on social media and the news about gender equality, about Russia and Ukraine war, about um, Ethiopia's war, Yemen and, and Palestine, Israel, all of it at the simplest form is just about treating everybody equally, despite social class, economic class, no matter what, just treating all people with the same respect and dignity that everyone deserves that all humanity deserves and i thank you don for for shedding some some light on some political you know struggles that you've been a part of some societal um struggles you've been a part of and and i really appreciate you being a catalyst for change in not only your local community but your national community and your global community because i aspire to create the change that you have begun and continue the work that you have done in making sure that our kids and our grandkids don't have to continue to go through the same struggles that we are going through. And I hope that is through conversations like this one, through books like your book and many other tough and sometimes awkward conversations that more people need to have, especially the people who are in positions of power and, and privilege um, so that we can break down these barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. Well, well said. <laughs> thank you, Don. So thank you for joining us and coming uh, together from a ways and working together for change. Oh,